Well, as you can see, we're starting a new series today, a new mini-series called Sanctifying the Ordinary. I really just want us to take, really in light of what we looked at while we're on retreat, but also just generally, uh, we're going through John. John's an amazing book, absolutely amazing book of the Bible, and yet there's not a lot of application in it, and I'm aware of that. And I think then when we're going on a very prolonged series, we, we do need to take time to think strategically about mini-series where we can pause and look at, okay, well, what do you want us to apply in this season? So sanctifying the ordinary is, is just that. It's an opportunity to pause and say, okay, well, how can we live then in light of this glorious gospel? How can we live in light of all that the Saviour has done for us and continues to do? So if you'd like to turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to give ourselves to just one word, one verse, verse 29. And this message is called Words. That's, that's it. Just words. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, it's very important that we understand this is in the context of, of gospel living. For, for Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul has been talking at length about gospel calling. And what it is to know that we've been chosen before the foundation of the world and that you're redeemed and adopted and that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance and that heaven is truly our home and that he will keep it that way. That's what chapters 1, 2 and 3 are all about. They're all about gospel calling, the fact that God in his grace has saved you in full through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, chapters 4, 5 and 6 then are looking at gospel living. How do we live then in response to that. It doesn't add to our salvation, but it really works out, okay, in light then of the calling that I've received, Lord, how do you want me to live? In light of the fact that I'm part of the ecclesia, the called out ones, how do you want me to live then as your ambassador? In Ephesians 4.29, he talks to us then about words. This is what he says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let's pray. Lord, when it comes to the issue of words, the reality is we speak thousands of them every day. Lord, I pray then, would these words count? And would the words in this verse, carefully chosen by Paul, under the inspiration of you, would they pierce our hearts and change us? Would they motivate us and affect us? Lord, you are the God of grace, and you give grace to the humble. And so, Lord, would we all humble ourselves today before you, so that we can listen to you and be addressed by you, so that we may be informed how to live better for you. It's all worship, Lord. And so help us then with our words. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to God's word today and the Bible, the reality is that the Bible as a whole says an awful lot about words, about our conversation, about our speech, about the things that come flying out of our mouths every day. James chapter 1 verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious 
and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, listen, this person's religion is worthless. What a sobering statement. So he thinks he's religious and yet he cannot control his tongue. Therefore, his religion, worthless. Absolutely worthless. James chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He continues by saying, look at the ships. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. So not only do we need to be able to bridle our mouths, apparently our tongues are like a rudder of a great ship, like a spark of a great fire spreading across the land. It all starts with our, with our tongue. Were the words that we use. Proverbs 18 verse 21 then says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. That is how powerful your speech is. It can bring death or it can bring life. But it can bring death. It's so powerful in very nature. And then in Matthew 12 verse 36, the Savior himself says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will, will give an account for Every careless word they speak. Every careless word they speak. See, here's my point this morning. According to God, words matter. In fact, according to God, our every word matters. That's the big idea of Ephesians 4 verse 29. He's trying to get over to us the importance that according to God, our every word, every single thing that comes out of our mouths, it does indeed matter. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking straight up, Dave, didn't we do this last year? Haven't we done Ephesians before? And so didn't we preach this message back in March of 2011? Yes, some of it. We did indeed look at this topic before, back in March of last year. But here's the thing. Some of you weren't here then. In God's grace, we've grown a lot in the last 16 months. And so I'm aware that there are a number of people in the room, many people in the room, that have never actually been addressed under the premise of the importance of words. So many of you were not here when we went through Ephesians. But secondarily to that, I'm aware that so many of you that were here, you will have completely forgotten it. Because that's the way it works. It can be depressing for a preacher. It can also be job security for a preacher. (laughs) We forget. We move on. And yet, given the importance that God assigns our words, I don't want to miss this opportunity again then to talk to us about the importance of our words that which come out of our mouths all the time. You know, one of the biggest temptations I think we all have, particularly as believers, is to start to unbiblically think of our words as just that. Just words. And I think part of the dilemma of that is we say so many of them that the sheer number of them can have a numbing effect on our hearts and our minds, can't it? 
we start to think of them as just no big deal, just, just words. We just speak what we do. Science Magazine a few years ago did a little experiment. They actually pinned on 400 men and 400 women microphones. They pinned them on them for four weeks. And at the end of that time, they got in all the data and somebody actually counted every word that those individuals have said over the four weeks. And they discovered through this science magazine that we all, on average, say 25,000 words every day. 25,000 words come out of your mouth every day. And so if you did indeed hear this message before on the 27th of March 2011, since then you've spoken 119,750,000 words. And according to God, every word matters. I make no apology then for speaking on this topic again. It's important. It's important that we learn to bridle our tongue, that we understand it's a rudder, it's, it's a fire. It's so important to the Lord. Paul Tripp then says this encouragement to us in his outstanding but war of words. He says, talk seems so normal, so ordinary, so unimportant, so harmless. Yet there are few things we do that are more important. Words are powerful, important and significant. It was meant to be that way. When we speak, it must be with the realization that God has given our words significance. He's ordained them to be important. Words were significant at creation and at the fall. They are significant in redemption. God has given words value. So we must do all we can to assign to words the importance that scripture gives them. Amen to that. We must do all we can to assign to words the importance that Scripture gives them, that the Bible gives to our words. And so that's what I want us to do today. I want us to assign to our words, our 25,000 a day, the importance that Scripture gives to them. And so the way we all want us to proceed then is I want us to examine our words, our daily communication of our 25,000 words, in light of Ephesians 4. Verse 29. See, this verse, I think, if allowed, can have a transforming and motivational effect on our lives. It can affect us and change the way we view speech. And so today I want us to examine our words then in light of it. Three points then, and here's the first. Number one, the content of our words. The content of our words. Look at verse 29 again, first part of it. He says... Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Now, we, we must begin right here, folks. We must understand as friends and as a local church, this is not a divine suggestion. This is not a divine recommendation. This is not a divine encouragement. You know, he's not gathering the family and saying, look, if there's any chance, I think this would probably really help you along the way. No, no, this is a divine command. And we, we mustn't ignore that. We mustn't escape that. This is a divine command given to us by God. Let no, but only. Let no, but only. Let, let none, but, but only. Don't talk like this, but talk like this. I want you to put this type of speech off. And I want you to put this type of speech, I, I want you to put it on. That's what he's saying here in these verses. It's very clearly a command split into two sections. To put off 
and to put on. So what are we meant to put off? What is this forbidden talk? What is this forbidden speech? Well, it's, it's corrupting talk. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Corrupting talk. Now, this word corrupt does indeed paint quite a picture. See, when growing up in Spalding and Lincolnshire, I grew up in the country. And so, if, for those of you that know Bianca, growing up in Nambucca, I grew up in the, in the England equivalent of Nambucca. It's just a country. And so we had this huge garden. And in our garden, we had an apple tree. And I, I loved it because at different times, the apples would fall off. And, and, and I played hockey all the time. So I would run up to the apples and smack the living daylights out and they'd spread everywhere. And I absolutely loved that. But at different times, if you weren't quick enough to get the apples or you, were, you, know, you went on holiday or something like that, as the apples fell off, they'd fall onto the ground and they would just, they would rot. They would, they would decay. And so you would, you would hit them with the hockey stick because it was your right as a child to, to do that. But they would just be mushy and they would just go everywhere. They were brown. They would have maggots in them. They would smell. And so as you hit them sometimes, they'd actually smack you up in your own face because the mush would just... And it wasn't the most pleasant moment, particularly when you realize you got a bit on your lip or something like that of decayed, horrible apple. Well, Paul, in this context, is using the word corrupt very deliberately because the word corrupt in this context is exactly the same Greek word that is used to describe food that has gone decayed or rotten or spoiled. And so he's saying, you know, that, that type of... That type of speech, speech that brings decay, that's rotten, that's, that's spoiled, let none of that come out of your mouth. That should have no place amongst you. If you want a definition of what that type of speech is in context here, Paul is talking about this type of corrupt speech. Corrupt speech is any and all words or communication that deters, in growth, that deters growth in godliness, godliness and hinders the cultivation of godly relationships. Let me say that again. Corrupt speech is any and all words or communication that deters growth in godliness and hinders the cultivation of godly relationships. That is the type of speech that Paul is saying that that should have no place amongst you. Any and all speech that is damaging to an individual or to a church. Any and all speech that could bring harm to an individual or that can bring division in the church. Quite literally angry speech, vulgar speech, gossip, lies, slander. Quite literally, Paul is saying, let none of that come out of your mouth. For you as Christians, in light of eternity... That should have no place, no place at all in the way we speak. Now, one would assume that that imagery of corruption and that clear command to not speak in that way would cause us to ensure that we don't speak in that way. Yet, sadly, for many of us in the room, there is an ongoing temptation and tendency towards that sort of speech, isn't there? And I know it. Because I know it in my life too. She just a, about a month ago when Emma was working on the second session of Wisdom for Women, who she's, she's worked very hard. She's never spoken publicly before. And so I was seeking to help her as best I could in the task. But during the second session, as she prepared, I, I, I discerned or at least felt that she left it too late. And so as she was inquiring of me for help, 
She was not getting a response of, I'd love to help you. She's getting a response of, I, I can't believe you're asking me now. I've got my own messages to write. I've got messages to prepare for the retreat. I've got messages to prepare for every Sunday morning. What she received from me as she was asking me several questions was not gracious speech. It was angry speech. It was harsh speech. It was, it was irritated speech. It's a temptation. It's a tendency. And so in grace, she pulled me to so on side and said, Dave, I, I, I perceive you're, you're angry in your speech towards me. I did what all men do to start off with. I pretended I didn't think I was. And, you know, I, do, do you think? I, maybe it was a joke. No. <laughs> it was not a joke. And so I had to ask for her forgiveness. And Lord, Love, would you forgive me? Because my speech was, was entirely inappropriate. You are seeking to serve the ladies of sovereign grace and a task that I've given you that you're not used to. And when you're inquiring of me, somebody who does this every week, you should have my full attention, not an irritated response. So I asked for her forgiveness, something that happens in our home quite regularly. I'd love to tell you that that's the only time I struggle with a temptation or tendency towards worldly speech, but there are other times. A few weeks ago, I was talking to my wife again, and I was communicating to her what I thought was a perfectly ordinary observation of another pastor in another church. Thought it was fine. We're just chatting. Just letting you know how I feel when I think about different things. Which point my wife said, you know what? I'm not left in any sense with a godly opinion of that pastor or that church. So that doesn't sound like an observation to me. That sounds like gossip. Well, at that point I'm asking my wife for forgiveness once again, which is a routine thing most days in our house. Um, and she was right, and I'm so grateful to have a wife that is not intimidated by me. So grateful to have a wife that is happy to go toe-to-toe with me with the glory of the Lord and help me see my sin. Because I don't know about you, but I find it hard sometimes to discern my sin. I, I just take the edge off things and think that it's fine. And yet, no, it's sinful. I don't think I'm the only one in the room that has an ongoing temptation and tendency towards corrupt speech. I think there are others of us here. And folks, we must battle with that for the glory of God. We must. C.J. Mahaney says as follows. He says, Do a study of words and communication in the book of Proverbs, and you will discover that death is in the power of the tongue, that words penetrate the heart, and that words spread. They penetrate they corrupt, and they spread. We therefore need to examine our words closely and carefully, inviting others to assist us in the examination process. Because there is a potential in each one of us, each and every day, to use words that corrupt. A potential in each and every one of us, each and every day, to disobey this wise command, to use corrupt words, words that penetrate, and corrupt the soul of another individual, and for those words to then spread. Having observed the effect of corrupt words that have spread, no wonder God says, let there be no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. I think he's right. Our our words are powerful. They have the power to bring life or death, and if corrupt, they do bring death. 
and they can bring great damage. You know, there's an old saying that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never harm me. It's rubbish. They do. As biblically defined, words give great damage. And they can truly tear people apart. Words can tear marriages apart. Words can tear families apart. Words can do great damage to friendships. Words can do great damage to local churches. I've seen churches divide under heavy slander and gossip from a congregation and often poor leadership from the leaders and suddenly divisions are formed. That's why biblically defined, there are only really two things that you can be put out of a local church for under church discipline. Number one, sex outside of marriage, which is unrepented of and prolonged. Number two, slanderous talk, divisive talk. That's the weight that the Bible puts on those things. An individual who is bringing division, they must be addressed. And if unrepentant, they must be put out because they can damage the body. They can damage what you have. They can can damage what is taking place, such as the weight that the Bible puts on it. Our words are powerful. Damage churches, damage friendships, damage marriages. So folks, we must then, I want to encourage you to to position ourselves afresh then to ensure that out of the 25,000 words that we speak every day, that they're not corrupt. That they're not bringing death. But instead, they're, they're bringing life. So Paul commands us to let no corrupting talk then come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Here's what we need to put on. An often quoted statement that I've heard parents say to kids on many a times is if you can't say anything good, then don't say anything at all. You ever heard that one? You know, if you cannot, you know, if you can't say anything good in this moment, then just shut up. It's a great parenting moment to demand quiet from your child. It is completely unbiblical when it comes to this issue, because Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say, "Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths," and if you can't say anything else, then just shut up. <laughs> well, that would be a cool line, wouldn't it? But he doesn't. Now he says, "But only." Such as is good for building up. I don't want you to say this, but I do want you to say this. I I want you to use words that are strengthening, that are building, that are encouraging. So I want you to put on godly speech. I want you to put on words that edify. See, this is pure genius. Pure genius when it comes to God's great plan of redemption. See, God's great plan of redemption was to redeem a people to himself and then to redeem a people to each other, right? That's what the bride is, churches. Local churches are expression of the greater bride of Christ. So he plans to redeem us to himself and then redeem a people to one another. This is a genius plan. Listen, here's why. We are told in Scripture that God is always at work in the life of a believer, right? We know that period. Every Christian can know that. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What what hope that verse should give every believer in the room. Because what it is saying without clarity, with with absolute clarity, is that the grace of God in your life is ever-present. And it's never going to leave you. Because the grace of God is for you. The grace of God is functioning. The grace of God is active. The grace of God is rampant in your life and will be until the day of Jesus Christ when he brings it to completion. 
The grace of God is always present. But here's what I've found. So often, in our greatest moment of need as we go through our lives, we're somehow unaware of that. We knew it, but when the need arrives, we, we, we tend to forget. And so we're suffering. And in our suffering, we can so easily lose sight of the Lord. In our struggle with sin, we can so easily just lose hope and just think, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to get through this. I don't think I'm ever going to grow. I just I can't, don't think it's going to be possible. We lose hope. When we battle with condemnation over passing, we can so easily lose sight of the cross and over time just walk around with an increased burden on our back as Satan seeks to tempt us to despair regularly in our lives. As we're going through tired and wearisome seasons, we can so easily lose perspective. Under the weight of all that goes on in our lives, we lose sight of what we're about. We, we can't see the wood for the trees. We just, we, we're everywhere in our view. But how genius in and how kind of the Lord to then give us local church, to then ensure that we not only redeem to himself, but redeem to one another. Why? Well, so that you can have a home. So that you can have a family. So that there may be a venue where others around you can bring grace to you through their edifying speech. That's how speech is meant to function. Speech done properly, where it edifies others, can bring grace to the hearer. So for the one who is going through suffering, comforting grace is what they need. Comforting grace through the speech of others is what is communicated to that individual. Sanctifying grace to the one who is struggling with present sin. Justifying grace to the one who is struggling with past sin. Sustaining grace to the one who is weary and going through trial. This is just a genius plan. God in his grace says, you know what? I am with you until the end of the age. But I know you're going to forget that. I know you're going to, I know. So I'm going to give you a home. I'm going to give you a family. And when this family is functioning properly, properly letting no corrupting talk come out of their mouths, but instead that which is good for building up, when that is functioning properly and you actually know one another for the glory of God, then when you're down, when you're suffering, when you're struggling with sin, then we be brothers and sisters coming alongside, saying, look at Jesus. Look at his goodness. Look at his sovereignty. Look at his care. Look at how he holds you. That's just one of the hundreds of reasons why there should be no individual trying to be a Christian as a lone ranger. It is completely unbiblical and is not known about in this Bible in any shape or form. The only Christianity in this Bible is people connected and committed saying, this is my family. You're my pastor. I'm in this. Let's build. And I want to use my speech to edify others and and strengthen others and, and help others. Realizing that that's the way God's designed it to be and his wisdom for his glory and for my good so that I can be connected and committed and and can grow. Our words have the ability to corrupt or they have the ability to edify. So here's the question. What characterizes your 25,000 words a day then? Do they strengthen? Do they encourage? Do they build up? Or do they bring decay and corruption? At the end of your words, does somebody else feel more in love with Jesus? Or do they feel seared 
Or do they feel nothing? Just amoral words. Just hanging out. How's the weather? Good, good, good. Great. I feel like we're bonding. No, we're not. What do your words do? What characterizes your words? And so number one, the content of our words. Number two, the occasion of our words. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, listen, as fits the occasion. The occasion is also really important. I mean, right now, we're enjoying, I hope we're enjoying, the occasion of the Sunday morning preaching time, right? We all know that's what's happening. But imagine if I rocked up instead and say, hey, well, thanks for coming today. Right, quick Olympic report before we start. And then, you know, I bring up all the stats. And be like, what, what is he doing? Okay, well, we finished the Olympic report, so let's go into the weather. Just want to give you an update on how we're looking for the next month because I thought it might help you as a local church. And then we thought we'd just do a five-minute Q&A on politics. And it would be so strange because you're like, what are you doing? You know, the occasion is pastoring through the preached word. So that's what we've come for. That's what fits the occasion. We all know that, right? Well, in our speech to one another, according to Paul, our edifying words likewise must fit the occasion. They have to fit the occasion that we're walking into and seek to communicate into in an edifying way. So it's not like we can just develop a specific group of sovereign grace edifying words and then use them indiscriminately um, where, where we see fit. All right? It doesn't work like that. And that would just be really weird. And now and again, you meet somebody who's trying to do that, and it's very, very odd. All right? We can't have just these, these nice words that we just use just whenever, you know, in any conversation, and we'll just pop it in. That's really, really strange thing to do. Because these words have to fit the occasion. Our words can't just be blasted out there to whoever will listen at a certain time. Our words need to fit the occasion. For the glory of God. So in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14, a brilliant verse. Listen into it. Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Did you see it? It's not one size fits all, is it? Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. He doesn't say, okay, well, help the idle, admonish the faint-hearted. He's aware that, okay, there's different settings. Different people need different things in these moments. Our words need to fit the occasion because we're different. We need to be patient with them all. Did you notice that? And that's sometimes the one that we struggle with. Patient with them all. Whether you have to admonish or encourage or help, whoever, be, be patient with them all. But as you communicate to them, be aware that we need to communicate differently if we're really going to build, we're really going to edify people around us. And so it's vital, absolutely vital for us as a local church that we take time to listen and study and really know those that sit next to us. Otherwise, we'll never be able to truly use edifying speech because we'll have no idea what fits the occasion because we don't really know one another. If we're going to use words that fit the occasion, it's absolutely vital we study one another, that we give ourselves to things like life groups so that we can really get to know one another. What helps them? What what aids them? What doesn't help them? Is this a moment where I need to encourage? Is this a moment where I need to correct? Is this a moment where I need to help? I have no idea. I barely know them. Well, let's get to know them. 
You need to study people. Here's some questions then that I want to encourage you to ask that they may assist you. If they don't assist you, that's fine. But some questions that, that can help us study one another as we work out edifying words that fit the occasion. Number one, what is the person I'm talking to like? You know what? What are they like? That's going to affect the way I talk. It depends what they're like. What would help them? Number two, what's their season of life? And what are their present circumstances? Are they going through the test of adversity right now? Are they going through the test of prosperity right now? Is everything great in their lives or are they walking through some challenges? Well, that's going to affect the way we talk to them. Number three, what is their need right now as biblically defined? And we always need to think biblically, right? We need to sit under God's word. So, so as I'm communicating to them, being aware that I'm called by God to edify them through my words, then what really is their need? Do they need counsel? Do they need encouragement? Do they need warning? Do they need forgiveness? Do they need comfort? What do they need? And starting to build those frameworks in our mind as we communicate with each other. Number four, finally, is this an appropriate time for the words I'm thinking of employing. Vital. You know what? I think sometimes, particularly for those of you that are married gentlemen, I think sometimes we have the best words to say at the most horrible of times. We've all been there, right? You just think, you know what, my dear? Now is the moment that I'm going to speak Jesus to you. Um, and, and pretty much, this is probably pretty much verbatim prophecy right now to you. Um, so you need to listen up to me right now because this is going to really affect you probably for all eternity. And out it comes. And you realize this doesn't seem to have had the desired effect. Um, it, it seemed to be good quality material I was working through here. And, um, but it doesn't seem to have had the desired effect on you in this moment. Why is that so often? The reason so often that is the case is because it is not only the content of our words that are important, the occasion is also vital. Our words have to fit the time. They have to know the moment so that then they can be communicated. Proverbs 18 verse 13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is to his folly and shame. That's what happens when we don't pay attention. That's what happens when we don't really listen. That's what happens when we don't really know. We're quick to give an answer to our folly and our shame. But the words we want to use is Proverbs 15, verse 23. It says, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man. And a word in season, how good it is. Oh, let, let that be the words that we use. A word in season. Having studied someone, having got to know someone, and having understood that it's not only my content of what's coming out of my mouth, but my occasion. When I then communicate, and when we communicate, would our words then be a word in season? And as biblically defined, would they then be how good it is defined? Number three, then finally, the effect of our words. He says, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What is the intended effect of this type of speech? Well, this is what it is, that it may give grace to those who hear, that they would be a recipient of grace. C.J. Mahaney says it this way. He says, The word grace in this context 
simply means an undeserved gift. And the picture that comes then to mind is that of a perfectly chosen and wrapped gift that is then unwrapped before an individual as I begin to use my words to edify and build them up. For it is my responsibility to unwrap the gift before them through my speech and by God's grace then as I do, grace will be imparted to the hearer. So God has given us words to speak and it's almost like a gift that we're about to present to them, to bring grace to them. And now through my words then, I unwrap the gift and by God's grace then, he takes those words and brings grace to the hearer. He blesses them. They're built up as a result of the words we use. The effect of our words should be that people leave aware of grace, aware of God's goodness, of God's favor, of God's blessing. The effect should be grace to the hearer, comforting grace to the one who is suffering, sanctifying grace to the one who is struggling, ongoing sustaining grace to the one who is weary, justifying grace to the one who is struggling with sin. That should be the effect. You know, one of the joys of preparing this message this week as it comes to this local church is there are, my mind was flooded at different points as I prepared this message of times where you have, without any question, through your use of words, brought grace to the hearer. I think this is the way you live. I think this is the way you communicate. I think I need to grow in it. I think many of you probably don't need to grow in it in the way I do. I think the way you communicate brings great grace to the hearer. And so I want you to understand this, this message is in no sense a corrective message. No. This is an exhortative message. This is saying, take what you already do and keep doing it more for the glory of God. Take your lifestyle and the way you think through your words and continue to do all the more for the glory of God. So that our words then, by God's grace, may give grace to the hearer. You see, it's so important, as I said at the start, this, this text is under gospel living, not gospel calling. So we need to understand, however your words are, in scandalous grace, they do not reflect God's love for you. God's love for you is not built upon your words. God's love for you is built upon the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ and him alone. That's done. So we don't need anybody leaving this room today condemned as if, oh my gosh, if he was listening to my words, he wouldn't be saying what he's saying. You know, this would just be horrendous. This is awful. No, we're saved and we are loved and we are accepted by God through Jesus Christ's sacrifice in our place. Period. But now, in light of chapter 4, in light of the calling that you've received... Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. What what is that manner worthy of the gospel? Well, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is post-salvation. Now as we live for Jesus Christ, in light of eternity, wanting to draw attention to him, we use these words so that we may point to him for his glory. By way of application then, just quickly, a couple of points how we can apply this message. Number one, look for ways to apply this message both immediately and over the next week. Immediately and over the next week. What can you you do? 
how can we apply this message? If my words are meant to give grace to the hearer, I, I submit to you, before you go home today, the reality is you will have had numerous opportunities to use this type of speech before you leave the doors today. You can either use it, or you can lose it. And it's gone. All right. As we apply it, even today, okay, Lord, how, how can I use my speech to strengthen, encourage? So find ways of applying it today and indeed over the next week. Number two, consider memorizing this passage. There are certain passages that you want to carry in your heart. And I submit to you, this is one of them. Given the fact that 25,000 words fly out of your mouth every day, it's probably worth memorizing these 20 because, you know, they're really important. They're really clear. And they really guide us and give direction to how we're meant to live as Christians for his glory. So consider memorizing this passage and carrying it in your heart. Number three, invite others to help evaluate your words in light of this passage. Invite others to help you. Listen, you will not, you will not be able to evaluate your words by yourself. You will not. You will think they're okay. I think, yeah, yeah, I think, here's our personal assessment usually. We usually think, you know what, I think he's got a point there and there's probably a few areas I need to tweak, but I'm pretty good. Yeah, I think I'm pretty good. That's usually the assessment of ourselves. Or you usually get one or two with a melancholy type that will be leaving the room wanting to throw themselves off a cliff because they're convinced they've never said anything edifying ever. Our evaluations of ourselves are often not helpful. We need others to help us in the evaluation process. And so husbands and wives, find an unhurried time to walk through this process. Ask each other. Okay, listen. Here's what you say, husbands. Here's what you say. Love, if you knew I would not get angry with what you're about to say, how would you evaluate my speech? How would you evaluate my use of words? That's what you say, and you say that in hope that she will reciprocate, and you will have your moment. So you, that's, how you, that's how you roll. That's how you roll. It's how it works. But in an unhurried time, take time to, to ask each other's evaluation. No one will be able to assess you better than your wife or your husband. No one. Because no one is on the receiving end of more words that come out of your mouth than them. So... Help, help critique them. Do as I spend time with my spouse, feel more in love with Jesus or not. Am I more aware of his grace in my life or the areas I need to change? What's going on? What's coming out of our mouths? Singles, find a family member or a friend that knows you and ask the same thing. If you don't know anybody well enough, that's a problem. It is. And you need to change your life so that you can get to know people well enough then. Because within this context of this local church, there's really no excuse for not knowing people well enough. Every day you can invite somebody to your home. Every day. I'll come if nobody else will. <laughs> get people involved in your lives. And then as you get to know them, say, listen, what's your observation of the way I talk? Is it helpful? Is it not? Parents, find an appropriate time to draw your children into this. And do. So something that we've done for many years, it's often fun in a sort of weird way. Just by trying to help your kids, you know, okay, so how do you think, you know, daddy's speech is going? And 
And you just, you know, would you like more Coke while you think about it? What would you like? I mean, it, it tends to be an outing. It tends to be like, okay, well, let's go to McDonald's. Daddy, you've got a few questions. You know, that's the type of tone you want. It just eases your sorrow. Um, <laughs> but then listen up. And here's one thing you find. Kids, children are incredibly perceptive and guileless. They just tell you something we've done ever since Lydia was about four or five, you know. I remember sitting our kids down at different points, even since we've been here, and just saying, okay, if there's one area that your assessment would be that your daddy needs to grow in if he's going to love Jesus more, what would it be? What, what would you say it would be? And help, help me see it. Um, it's helpful. It's helpful. They give you great insight. You know what else is helpful? In that moment, you're, you're training your child in something. And we've seen fruit of that because probably about a year ago, we were, we were out at a family dinner, and Josh said, i got a question for the family. I said, so great. What, what's that? I'm excited. Um, he said, well, if there's one area that I need to grow in to love Jesus more, what would it be? And you, you well, thanks for asking, son. That's, that's great. And we were just able to communicate our love for him and where we were evidences of grace in his life. He said, well, maybe, maybe this one area. And, okay, good. Lydia says, I've got a question for the family. And you're like, okay, I know where we're going. I know where we're going. But, but it starts to breed into them an intimacy and a way of life. And their assessment is usually, genuinely, their assessment is usually quite divine. They give you great insight. Different times when I sat with Amy in particular, I think she's very perceptive. Amy, what's one area that I could grow in? Well, Dad... That sometimes I, I think when I communicate, I don't think you're really listening to me. I think you, you're a million miles away and, and I'm here. And you're like, oh, Amy, I'm so sorry for that. Would you forgive me for that? Daddy needs to work much harder on listening to you. And I'm listening to you right now. What's happening in your life? And Bring your kids into your lives, folks. So parents, find an appropriate time to draw your children into this. Teenagers, likewise, find a time to draw out your mum and dad. Know what you're thinking right now? I'm pleased he's not my teens leader. That's true. Good news is, I'm your pastor. So I want to encourage you to find a time to sit with your parents and say, okay, help me see my speech. Where do I need to grow? So invite others to help evaluate your words in light of this passage. Number four, finally, consider creating some time for further study. So particularly Proverbs 17, Proverbs 18, Proverbs 19, and the book War of Words that is on the bookshop by Paul Tripp, just an outstanding book helping us understand our words in light of eternity. Listen, folks, according to God, words matter. According to God, our every word matters. And so I want to encourage you, let no corrupting talk then come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace. That's our aim. To those who are here, let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you that, that although we are motivated and challenged and provoked and encouraged by your word, that the use of our words does not reflect upon your feelings towards us. Lord, I thank you that your love is not conditional on our words. Lord, I thank you that your acceptance is not conditional upon our words. Lord, I thank you that your 
your praise and singing over us and affirmation of us as you see us clothed in the righteousness of your Son is not conditional on our words. And yet, Lord, motivated by what you achieved by drinking the cup of staggering in our place. Lord, would we invest our words wisely in your kingdom and for your glory and as worship to you. Lord, we want to please you as your children. And so, Lord, give us all grace. Give us grace to evaluate, grace to change. And would it all be for the audience of one? In Jesus' name, amen.